New York. This is Democracy Now! These are the gates to a living nightmare. A nightmare where people have been suffocating under persistent bombardment, mourning their families, struggling for water, for food, for electricity and fuel. The United Nations' top human rights official has called for far more humanitarian aid to be allowed into Gaza as he accuses both Israel and Hamas of committing war crimes. We'll speak to the Palestine Red Crescent Society about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Then we speak with a Palestinian-American poet and physician, Fadi Judah. Dozens of his family members have been killed in Gaza over the past month. Plus, we look at last night's Republican primary debate, which Donald Trump skipped again. I'm sick of hearing the media. I'm sick of hearing other people blame Israel just for defending itself. We will stand with Israel in word and in deed, in public and in private. The last thing we need to do is to tell Israel what to do. The only thing we should be doing is supporting them and eliminating Hamas. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Tens of thousands of Palestinians scrambled to flee northern Gaza on foot Wednesday after Israel's military gave them a four-hour window to leave. Israeli officials say some 100,000 civilians remain in northern Gaza, down from more than a million a month ago. Human rights groups say many seniors, pregnant people, parents of young children and people with disabilities have been unable to heed Israel's mass evacuation orders. This is Ahmed Mohammed, whose neighborhood near the Al-Shati refugee camp came under intense Israeli bombardment. May Allah protect us, because under these circumstances, anyone who wants to leave needs to have enough resources to be able to do that. Those without will have to stay where they are. It's as if they've sentenced us to death. The U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, says 70 percent of Gaza's residents are displaced. Supermarkets have been swept clean of food and other essentials. Israeli assaults have destroyed about a dozen of Gaza's bakeries. With no clean drinking water, Palestinians have been forced to bathe in the Mediterranean Sea, where a total shutdown of Gaza's wastewater treatment plants has forced the daily release of huge quantities of untreated sewage. The World Health Organization warned Wednesday of the spread of disease. It says since early October, there's been a 16-fold increase in cases of diarrhea, most of them children under five. Gaza's health ministry says one Palestinian child is being killed every 10 minutes. 4,324 children have been confirmed killed in 33 days of relentless bombardment. Another 1,350 children are missing and presumed buried under the rubble. More than 10,500 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed. On Wednesday, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, traveled to the Egyptian side of the Rafah border crossing to Gaza, where he demanded an immediate ceasefire and accused both Israel and Hamas of committing war crimes. This is the gateway to a hellish nightmare. I cannot even fathom to think what people are going through on the other side. And then I see in front of me the lifeline that would bring, that would bring relief and humanitarian assistance, which until now has not been enough, woefully inadequate. To see our interview with Volker Turk, 
as well as the head of the New York office of the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, who resigned in protests over Israel's assault on Gaza, go to democracynow.org. In the occupied West Bank, the Palestinian health ministry says an overnight Israeli military assault on the Janine refugee camp has killed eight people and wounded at least 14 others. Elsewhere, Palestinian media workers took to the streets of Ramallah Tuesday to condemn the killing of their colleagues and demand Israel be held accountable by the International Criminal Court and the United Nations. This is Nasser Abu Bakr, head of the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate. More than 60 media organizations were destroyed. Dozens of journalists' families were killed. Dozens of houses that belonged to journalists were bombed. More than 22 broadcasting channels in the Gaza Strip stopped working completely. This is in addition to the greater crime, which is the killing of journalists themselves. More than 40 journalists and workers in media institutions were killed in Israeli bombardment. CIA Director William Burns is in Qatar today, where indirect talks are underway aimed at a deal that would see Hamas release hostages in exchange for a three-day ceasefire in Gaza. The talks reportedly revolve around the release of 12 hostages, half of them U.S. citizens. Last month, Qatar was reportedly closing in on a deal to release 50 hostages that fell apart when Israel launched its ground invasion of Gaza. Hamas has claimed more than 20 hostages have been killed by Israel's bombardment. It's believed Hamas is holding more than 240 people captive. Israel's Supreme Court has banned anti-war protests after residents of Arab-majority towns in northern Israel applied for permits to call publicly for a ceasefire. Israel's High Court of Justice sided with police, who said protests would divert critical resources. On Wednesday, Israel's Knesset amended its counterterrorism law, introducing a new criminal offense, the, quote, consumption of terrorist materials, unquote. Violators face up to one year imprisonment. Human rights groups have compared the amendment to thought policing and warn even passively downloading material produced by Hamas could land people in prison. More than 300 Ukrainian scholars, artists and activists have signed a letter expressing solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. They write, quote, Palestinians have the right to self-determination and resistance against Israel's occupation, just like Ukrainians have the right to resist Russian invasion, unquote. The letter stands in contrast to the stance taken by Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, who'd been planning to go to Israel today to show support for Israel's assault on Gaza, but canceled after news of his travel plans leaked. In Belgium, the deputy prime minister, Petra de Sutter, called Wednesday for the European Union to immediately suspend its association agreement with Israel and called on Belgium's government to take meaningful action to stop the violence. It is time for sanctions against Israel. The reign of bombs is inhumane. While war crimes are being committed in Gaza, Israel ignores the international demand for a ceasefire. In 2020, the deputy prime minister, Petra de Sutter, made history as the first transgender minister in Europe. Here in the United States, dozens of Jewish peace activists led a peaceful sit-in protest at the office of Earl Blumenauer Wednesday, calling on the Democratic Congress member to support a lasting ceasefire in Gaza. On Capitol Hill, more than 100 congressional staffers staged a walkout demanding their bosses back a ceasefire in Gaza. Also on Wednesday, over a thousand employees of USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, signed a letter backing a ceasefire. They added, quote, humanitarian assistance efforts 
efforts and life-saving aid are largely rendered moot in situations of escalating and indiscriminate bombing and violence, unquote. In Sudan, thousands have been forced to flee West Darfur as the Rapid Support Forces militia makes major advances in the region, seizing cities from the Sudanese army. CNN reports the RSF is killing and torturing various ethnic groups. Fighting between the country's military and RSF broke out on April 15th in Khartoum and has since spread. At least 10,000 civilians have been killed. Many more injured. The U.N. says four and a half million people have been internally displaced, while over 1.2 million have fled Sudan, many of them crossing into Chad. They told me that my brother was killed and we do not know where he is. I, my mother, and my sister's children came to Chad. We don't know where my father is. We couldn't find him. They burned everything and took everything. We did not bring anything with us, only God and our clothes. The U.N. warns the conflict could soon engulf South Sudan in the disputed Abye region. Sudan's health system is stretched to the breaking point, they say, as four out of five health facilities have stopped functioning in some areas. Cholera, measles, dengue, and malaria are quickly spreading, as is malnutrition. The warring parties met for talks in Saudi Arabia this week, where they agreed to help facilitate humanitarian aid access, but did not agree to a ceasefire. The European Union's Climate Monitoring Agency says 2023 is on track to be the hottest year in at least 125,000 years. October shattered the previous record set for the month, set in 2019, with surface temperatures soaring to 0.85 degrees Celsius above historical averages. On Wednesday, a United Nations report found the world's top fossil fuel producers still plan to produce more than double the amount of fossil fuels in 2030 than what would be consistent with limiting global heating to one. Degrees Celsius. In Somalia, historic rainfall and flooding has killed at least 29 people and displaced over 300,000. The floodings also destroyed vital livestock and farmland. This is a displaced person describing the scene at one of the camps that's been set up to house fleeing residents. It is raining on us for the fifth day. Lying in the rain killed two elderly women. Our makeshift shelters were washed away. Children are missing now. We do not know whether they are dead or alive. We request the aid agencies to urgently help us. This rain is a disaster. The downpours come after a protracted drought in the Horn of Africa that killed an estimated 43,000 people in Somalia last year. The climate crisis is increasing unpredictable cycles of extreme weather. Democracy Now! will be broadcasting from the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai in December. In Texas, an explosion at a chemical plant in San Jacinto County triggered a massive fire, sending plumes of black smoke into the sky. Authorities ordered a nearby school to evacuate and others in the vicinity to shelter in place. The plant belongs to Sound Resource Solutions, a maker of solvents for glue and paint remover. The chemicals processed at the plant are highly toxic and have been linked to cancer, among other serious health issues. Texas Democratic State Senator Roland Gutierrez said, quote, unfortunately, chemical explosions are commonplace in Texas for decades, politicians like Ted Cruz have rolled back environmental protections and safety standards. Now our families, workers and communities are left to deal with the fallout, he said. Five candidates vying for the Republican Party's 2024 presidential nomination squared off in Miami, Florida, Wednesday evening for their third debate. 
In one of the evening's most heated exchanges, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott pressed former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley to commit to support a federal ban on abortions after 15 weeks. Haley countered she would, quote, support anything that would pass Congress. Once again, Republican frontrunner Donald Trump skipped the debate in Miami. Instead, he hosted a rally nearby in South Florida where he mocked other candidates, praised Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban as the, quote, leader of Turkey, and confused North Korean leader Kim Jong-un with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Kim Jong-un leads 1.4 billion people, and there's no doubt about who the boss is, and they want me to say he's not an intelligent man. Trump also said hungry borders on Russia and Ukraine, which it doesn't. We'll have more on last night's Republican debate later in the broadcast. Meanwhile, the Minnesota Supreme Court has rejected a bid to block Trump from the state's Republican primary ballot next month. There are similar efforts underway in Colorado and Michigan to bar Trump from running under the insurrection provision of the 14th Amendment. SAG-AFTRA and Hollywood Studios have reached a tentative agreement, ending the record-breaking 118-day strike. The deal includes an increase in minimum wages of 7 percent, a streaming participation bonus, higher pension and health contributions, and protections against artificial intelligence. This is Los Angeles SAG-AFTRA member Emily Kincaid, who highlighted the sacrifices made by union members to reach the historic agreement. We have a lot of our strike captains on the line that have been close to eviction and have had their only meal of the day be while they're striking. So it has not been easy, but we all have come together for a singular purpose and we've all helped each other and we knew we wanted to keep going until we got the deal that we deserved. And in Bangladesh, clashes between protesting garment workers and police led to the death of at least one worker Wednesday, while several others were wounded. Workers in the garment manufacturing hub of Ghazipur, on the outskirts of the capital, Dhaka, have been protesting for weeks to demand livable wages. On Tuesday, authorities announced an increase in the monthly minimum wage to $113, up from $75. But workers who are asking for a minimum of $208 a month rejected the offer. This is Rahima Begum. Have you seen the price of potatoes and onions in the market? The new hike will not compensate for the deficit of our needs. It should be raised farther. We have to pay rent, food, and children's education. The market economy is on fire. How can we go on like this? Bangladesh has some 3,500 factories employing about 4 million garment workers, most of them women. They're making clothes for fast fashion brands in the U.S. and Europe, including H&M and Gap and sell to major chains like Walmart. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Israel and the United States are continuing to reject calls for a ceasefire in Gaza as the death toll from Israel's bombardment tops 10,500, including over 4,000 Palestinian children. Tens of thousands of Palestinians in northern Gaza have evacuated their homes on foot as Israeli troops attempt to forcibly seize control of the area. The UN estimates 1.5 million Palestinians have been displaced in Gaza. That's 70 percent of Gaza's population. Many Palestinians fear Israel will never allow them to return to their homes. On Wednesday, the top human rights official at the United Nations, Volker Turk, traveled to the Egyptian side of the Rafah border crossing, where he accused both Israel and Hamas of committing war crimes. Rafah 
crossing has been the symbolic lifeline for the last month for the 2.3 million in Gaza. The lifeline has been unjustly, outrageously thin. These are the gates to a living nightmare. A nightmare where people have been suffocating under persistent bombardment, mourning their families, struggling for water, for food, for electricity and fuel. On the other side of this gate is Gaza, already described as the world's biggest open-air prison before 7 October, under a 56-year occupation and a 16-year blockade by Israel. The atrocities perpetrated by Palestinian armed groups on the 7th of October were heinous. They were war crimes, as is the continued holding of hostages. The collective punishment by Israel of Palestinian civilians is also a war crime, as is unlawful, forcible evacuation of civilians. In Gaza City, Israeli airstrikes have hit areas near Al-Shifa Hospital, Gaza's largest hospital. Meanwhile, most operations at Al-Quds Hospital have been halted due to dwindling fuel supplies and daily Israeli attacks on areas around the hospital. Most roads to the hospital have been destroyed. The hospital is run by Palestine Red Crescent Society, which is part of the International Red Cross. We go now to Ramallah, in the occupied West Bank, where we're joined by Nabal Farsakh a spokesperson for the Palestine Red Crescent Society. Thanks so much for being with us. If you could start off by talking about the uh, state of the hospitals in Gaza right now and what hospitals are you being told that you must have evacuated and what is the response of the Palestinian Red Crescent, Nabal? Good morning. Thanks for having me. The situation now in hospitals is dire. Almost 18 hospitals out of 35 in Gaza Strip has been uh, go, uh, gone out of service, either due to bombardment as, or because extreme shortage of uh, they are running out of the fuel and the medical supplies. The rest of the hospitals are operating under extreme difficult situations. They are having uh, extreme shortages of medical supplies and medicine, as well as almost running out of a fuel, for example, Al-Quds Hospital. Yesterday, we had to reduce all services and operations in Al-Quds Hospital to the extent that the major and main generator in the hospital has been turned off. And now we are only using the small generator. The hospital's surgical ward has been shut down as well. The hospital's oxygen generator also has been shut down. And now we are using oxygen cylinders. According to the information, we are only now for 24 hours um, and we will be completely shutting, out, shutting down because we will be running out of fuel. Basically, up to this moment, none of the aid has been allowed to get into uh, Al-Quds Hospital. This is the fourth day, and Al-Quds Hospital has been under intense bombardments. Along of uh, all roads that leads to Al-Quds Hospitals are closed because of the bombardment. The roads are uh, closed. 
our emergency medical services team, they are also inside the hospital, so they are unable to go out of the hospital to arrive the wounded people. In the area, they can see from where they are inside the hospital that there are many wounded people very close to the hospital, but unfortunately, they feel helpless because of the intense bombardment is so much dangerous. So they even can go out to arrive those wounded people and save their lives. And the area where the hospital is located now became so much dangerous as highlighted. All roads are closed, so nobody can get into Al-Quds Hospital. Unfortunately, none of the aid has been allowed to get uh, into Al-Quds Hospital. Two days ago, we were waiting for aid to come in through ICRC. However, the ICRC convoy was targeted by Israeli occupation forces, and unfortunately, they were unable to deliver the aid to Al-Quds Hospital. So now the situation, not only the problem is fuel, we are barely having food food or water for our staff and our patients and for over 14,000 civilians who are currently sheltering inside the hospital. Because of the continuous bombardments, all the windows uh, have been full down, I mean the glass, so they are literally open and at night time it became so much cold, even for families who are lying and sleeping on the ground, you can't imagine uh, the picture of children who are feeling so much cold and don't even have a blanket to to warm them up. So now we are in urgent need for everything, for blankets, for food and water. Those children, they even have a very minimum amount of food. As I mentioned, we barely have even food for the staff or for the patients. This is the third day all Gaza City and the North is out of bread because all bakeries have already run out of fuel. So none of Gazans who are uh, now currently in Gaza and the north are able to get any piece of bread. There's still in Gaza and the north uh, almost 500,000 civilians who are still now sheltering in schools and hospitals in those areas where Israel forced its people to evacuate. It's not uh, easy to say just evacuate because intense bombardments are just taking place all over. And it's not safe to evacuate the, yourself, taking into consideration that, as you highlighted, many people have to do that in foot under intense bombardments. There is no transportation. There is complete destruction of the road and infrastructure. And simply a, 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 an ICRC convoy was targeted while it was in its way from the south to the north, so how it would be safe for civilians to evacuate themselves to the south. And, and Nepal, so if you could respond to the fact that Israel has said either evacuate from Al-Quds Hospital or the Palestinian Red Crescent is responsible for any deaths. And then also, uh, you know, you've said that, uh, you know, oxygen generators have now been shut off. You're relying on oxygen cylinders, uh, that fuel is running out. I mean, what do you how will this uh, uh, go if you don't have access to fuel what do you fear will happen to these patients who are dependent on oxygen, not to mention uh, all of the other medical supplies that are uh, dwindling, if not have entirely run out? 
Yes, we have announced repeatedly that we have around 500 patients inside the hospital. Many of them are connected um, to life support machines. They are in the intensive care unit. We have babies in incubators. We don't have the means to evacuate them safely. Evacuating them means killing them, taking into consideration that already intense bombardments are taking place. So there will be no even any way to evacuate the staff along with 14,000 civilians who are currently taking shelter because simply they have nowhere, no way to go to. Hospitals, healthcare personnel, healthcare facilities should be protected under international humanitarian law. There will be no justification for Israel targeting Al-Quds Hospital, although the, even the WHO has announced that Evacuation orders against hospitals are impossible to implement. They constitute a death penalty for patients. Doctors, nurses, healthcare workers should not put in an option to choose either to lose your life or risk your life or even turn back, turn your back to your patients and just Go, go away. This is not acceptable. And this situation to be under intense bombardments, under constant fear and panic of losing your life, it's also unacceptable. As I said, for over at least a week, now two weeks almost, intense bombardments are taking place in a very close area of the hospital to the extent that most of, of the buildings in the surrounding area of the hospital has been damaged. Airstrikes are taking place even 15 meters away from the hospital. It has resulted to at least 16 people were injured during these bombardments to the extent that a patient in the intensive care unit was also injured. This should not be acceptable. I can't describe the situation now inside the hospital when I'm talking about 14,000 civilians. Most of them are children and women just sleeping on the hospital's ground. Every single corner in the hospital, there is internally displaced people who have no other option. This is the last choice for them. It's just seeking shelter to a place they thought they will be in a safe place. Unfortunately, this is not the case because Israel, it looks like it's absolutely over and above the international humanitarian law. Unfortunately, as a humanitarian organization, we have completely run out of all of solutions. Over three weeks now, we have been calling on the international community to intervene immediately to allow the entry of humanitarian aid to Gaza and including fuel. We have warned repeatedly, we are running out of fuel. We have already run out of fuel a week ago. So we managed to get some fuel from some gas stations who had some leftover. Unfortunately, because of the continuous blockade on Gaza particularly and the north, it's now an impossible mission to find a one liter of gas, a one liter of, of fuel in Gaza and the north. We have come to an end. We have already reduced all of our operations, all of our services in order just to manage to take care of those patients who are now inside the hospital. And although we have taken all of these measures, we are only for 24 hours. At that point, the hospital small generator will shut down. And then the lives of those who are connected to life support machines, they will lose their life. We even, 
We even can't imagine the situation we will be in as a humanitarian organization. We feel helpless. And about your response to Israel saying if you don't evacuate Al-Quds Hospital, your organization, the Palestinian Red Crescent, is responsible for any deaths? As I said, international humanitarian law is clear. Hospitals, healthcare workers, healthcare facilities, civilians should not be a target. If an attack or whatsoever happened for Al-Quds Hospital, this will be a responsibility of Israel, the responsibility of the international community who are up to this moment failed to stand up for humanity, failed to pressure Israel to ensure the protection of civilians, healthcare personnel and healthcare facilities. Up to this moment, four colleagues were killed during conducting their humanitarian role, trying to save other people's life. 22 other paramedics were injured at least eight ambulances completely went out of service due to Israeli bombardment and targeted four, four ambulances. This also should be stopped stop. under all circumstances in all conflicts. Healthcare workers, healthcare personnel, healthcare facilities and hospitals, along with civilians, they should be protected. Unfortunately, 70% of the victims of thousands of people who were killed in Gaza are children, women and elderly people. This war crimes should be stopped. And Nibal, I mean, if you could talk specifically about uh, uh, the situation of children, over 4,000 uh, killed, countless others uh, uh, thought to be under uh, uh, the rubble. But apart from that, there's a new acronym that's been in use in Gaza hospitals, uh, WCNSF, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family. If you could say something about that, Nibal, whether you're witnessing that how much you're witnessing it in hospitals there, Al-Quds included. Unfortunately, because of the intensive bombardments that is taking place on people's residential buildings, houses, without even any prior warning, that has resulted to wiping up whole families. And unfortunately, many children who, were, who are survivors now, they don't even have uh, any, um, any family member. We have saved a 12 years old girl. She was under the rubble for almost 30 hours. Unfortunately, she has lost all of her, of her family. And now she is currently sheltering inside the hospital. Our psychosocial support team try as much as they can to support her, but no words can describe the traumatized situation that this 13 years old girl along with other children in Gaza are living because of this intense bombardments even though those who are who didn't lose anyone simply being under intense bombardments day and night and see hearing strong bombardments with complete darkness because of the cut of electricity is just so much horrifying and panic, panic among those children who are living unprecedented situations that no child in this world we wish is be living. 
Naval, Farsakh, we want to thank you for spending this time with us, spokesperson for the Palestine Red Crescent Society, joining us from Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. Coming up, we'll speak to the Palestinian-American poet and physician Fadi Judah. Israel's killed dozens of his family members in Gaza in just the past month. Stay with us. By Mesa Daw. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we continue to look at Israel's bombardment of Gaza, we're joined in Houston, Texas, by Fadi Judah. He's an award-winning Palestinian-American writer and poet, as well as a physician. He's translated several collections of poetry from Arabic into English, including work by the renowned Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darish. Dozens of his family members have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. His recent piece for Lit Hub is titled A Palestinian Meditation in a Time of Annihilation. Fadi Judah, welcome to Democracy Now! First of all, of course, our condolences uh, on the loss of your family members. If you could uh, say a little bit about uh, those family members and how you and your family here in the U.S. are, are keeping in touch uh, with people who remain in Gaza. Thank you. Um, uh, we have had uh, more than 50 or 60 people in our extended family killed by Israeli airstrikes. Some of them are in-laws of uh, uh, one of my cousins, um, and uh, others are uh, different families. Uh, others were also killed uh, by the dozens in one strike. Um, uh, one particular story is uh, of a, a woman, a woman I, I knew uh, since uh, uh, when I was a child uh, in uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, uh, her brother's grandkids were, were killed um, because Israel bombed the house next to them, and in the bombing uh, their one of the walls, uh, f one of the walls of their house fell off on them, and they were sleeping, uh, and it killed the three grandchildren and the parents, and only the grandfather survives. So this is also a different spectrum of um, what we hear about the children being the only survivors in uh, entire families. There are also stories of. <laughs> elderly people who uh, have survived 1948, the Nakba, or 1967, and they're the only ones who are surviving 
or who have survived uh, their families. We try to uh, keep in touch with some family members through um, you know social media or uh, WhatsApp or what have you. Uh, but you know there's no guarantee that there is regular access or regular communication. You can send a message and uh, um, maybe get a response the next day. Um, in the beginning uh, of the war, um, uh, we could get a few uh, phone calls in, uh, but this stuff now is uh, is just uh, very difficult uh, to to access. Uh, uh, many people. The situation is unspeakable and will remain unspeakable, I think, for generations and decades. Um, has been a culmination of the Palestinian experience for a hundred years um, uh, since the British mandate and the beginning of settler colonialism uh, with Zionist uh, uh, immigration into Palestine. Um, it is really beyond words to describe what it means to be a Palestinian in this moment. The accumulation of, of um, multi-generational uh, trauma and memories that activates in each one of us. Uh, previous memories we've tried to overcome with hope and a, uh, a flair for life and for freedom, uh, only to find that um, there is always some horrific episode um, that reminds us that we are on, uh, on this earth in this time uh, liable to be massacred um, and lied uh, about. Uh, speaking uh, of which, Fadi, um, we're speaking to Fadi Judah, who is an award-winning Palestinian-American writer and poet and physician. Um, as you speak to us from Houston, we, we've spoken to so many Palestinians in Gaza, uh, in the West Bank as well. But you are here in the United States, and the United States is so important um, when it comes to uh, how Israel deals with Palestine because of the amount of aid to the tune of billions of dollars a year and as now asking for much more. Can you talk about how the media here covers this issue? Well, it's how the media doesn't cover it. I think that I've written in the piece there, and I've written in other pieces before, there is a collective psychosis in the mainstream language of U.S. media and administration um, that is bizarre to the uh, point of ghosting Palestinians, permitting their erasure year after year, decade after decade. When we say, for example, Israel has the right to defend itself, we're also saying um, that Palestinian lives are not equal uh, to any other lives that we uh, deem superior to them. And I think that we have not repeatedly asked the question in American media and culture, do you believe that Palestinian lives are equal to Israeli lives and to Jewish lives? There are many Jewish people among them who believe the answer is yes, but there are many more who haven't even entertained the question honestly. And I think that the, the importance of the question is to go beyond the moral lip service reflex of saying, of course, yes, because to say yes means that you have to believe in the equal humanity of Palestinians as a political condition for freedom. When we hear about all the stuff from uh, Blinken or Biden, it is really a language that says, 
we uh, we believe that the Palestinians have rights when we decide that they have equal rights. We will put it on the back burner, always on the back burner. And what I say is that we have reached a point where the murder and the destruction of Palestinian lives has reached a point of every time it reaches, it goes up higher, uh, escalates uh, in what is permissible uh uh, about destroying Palestinian lives. We're not just talking about the numbers of the dead. We are talking about um, two million people who are um, uh, living a life worse than death, and they have to overcome that. And the trauma of that is unspeakable. And I, and I do not expect the U.S. media uh, and mainstream media or politics to even care about this um, the ghosting continues. Yesterday in the Washington Post, they uh, published a racist cartoon um, in which they took down because there was an immediate uh, back, uh, um, I mean, uh, uh, lashing out at the racist cartoon. It is unimaginable to think that this, and it shouldn't be uh, imaginable, to think that this would be directed at Jewish lives or Israeli uh, lives. But it is permissible to dehumanize Palestinians until it has become part of the accepted um, uh, feeling within the American psyche or consciousness on the whole. And so everyone, I think, uh, on the whole, uh, except pockets here and there, is really complicit uh, in the permissibility of the destruction of Palestinian lives that has reached uh, uh, an, uh, you know, an unprecedented level in, their, in our hundred years of, of being uh, massacred, displaced, uh, dehumanized. Well, Fadi, I want to uh, ask you about a point that you raise in uh, this uh, beautiful essay that you've written, A Palestinian Meditation in a Time of Annihilation. In the essay, you cite uh, Aimé Césaire, uh, the renowned uh, Martinican poet, very important anti-colonial thinker who wrote one of the canonical texts on colonialism, a discourse on colonialism. You cite him saying, neither America nor Europe seem able able or willing to solve their colonial addiction, their civilizational motif. Israel is a translation of that failure, a prized Western desire. But Israel has agency in mechanizing this desire. Could you explain, elaborate on that? Well, I, I think that for some of us who uh, know or don't know that um, the establishment of uh, the State of Israel in 1948 um, was a response uh, to the Zionist movement in Europe uh, by a, uh, a Jewish people in Europe who had suffered uh, a lot of oppression, but to overcome that oppression, they chose uh, to side with um, the colonial aspect, the, domina the domineering aspect of the culture that dominated them, and export that as a mode for success and triumph into a Palestine without much recognition of uh, the racism involved in dehumanizing what they call the Arab population of Palestine. And since then, it has been in the interest of uh, the West uh, and the U.S. to prop up Israel um, as a uh, an outpost, uh, so to speak, for uh, uh, 
further domination of the Middle East for various uh, reasons. Um, but the problem is that this kind of propping up has really gone uh, mad at this point. Um, there's uh, and 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 you know we I think we've reached a moment and others have said it where the degree of uh, colonial viciousness um, that exists now in Israeli society uh, and is supported by the West uh, sends us back to 19th century um, barbarism, really, uh, colonial barbarism. Um, and so, and, and then, um, uh, obviously, uh, Israel is interested in... Um, affecting this kind of behavior in within the U.S. Um, uh, through major lobby influences and also cultural influences. Um, as I said, I, 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 or let me say it this way, there, there, it would be an amazing achievement if Zionists in the U.S. and outside it would actually say to a single Palestinian, I am sorry. Just once. This has not happened in a hundred years. It has happened, of course, on an individual level. Um, I have Jewish friends and colleagues who have said it um, because we are all human and there is no monolithic collective anywhere. But I, I think that we, uh, one of the things we need to do is to begin to shift the language that speaks of the Palestinian and to allow for more Palestinian presence in the American consciousness beyond death and dying. It seems to me that Palestinians in the, in the West are only alive when they are dying. And that is uh, abhorrent and unacceptable. And that is part of a settler colonial uh, mentality that only humanizes its subjects when they are um, limp, uh, near dying, uh, completely helpless, obedient, uh, any sense of resistance or um, rise toward freedom or liberation is denied them through dehumanizing language and, uh, you know, manipulative um, uh, approaches and processes. Fandi Judah, we want to thank you so much for spending this time with us, Palestinian-American writer poet, translator, and physician, speaking to us from Houston. Dozens of his family members have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. We'll link to your recent piece for LitHub, A Palestinian Meditation in a Time of Annihilation. Coming up, we'll look at last night's Republican debate, which Donald Trump skipped again. Stay with us.
Your time is going to come by Led Zeppelin here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Shea. On Wednesday night, the Republican Party held its third presidential debate in Miami. Former President Donald Trump refused to take part and opted to hold a nearby rally. Five Republicans were on stage. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor and U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and biotech investor Vivek Ramaswamy. The debate began with a question about Israel. This is NBC's Lester Holt. As president of the United States, what would you be urging Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to do at this moment? Governor DeSantis. I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. They're terrorists. They're massacring innocent people. They would wipe every Jew off the globe if they could. He cannot live with that threat right by his country. That Hamas should release every hostage and they should unconditionally surrender. I'm sick of hearing the media. I'm sick of hearing other people blame Israel just for defending itself. We will stand with Israel in word and in deed, in public and in private. Ambassador Haley, what would you do? What would you be urging Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to do? Would you consider humanity? Pause, for example. The first thing I said to him when it happened was I said, finish them, finish them. And the reason is I worked on this every day when I was at the United Nations. And we have to remember that they have to, one, eliminate Hamas, two, support Israel with whatever they need, whenever they need it, and three, make sure we bring our hostages home. We need to be very clear-eyed to know there would be no Hamas without Iran. There would be no Hezbollah without Iran. There would would not be the Houthis without Iran. And there wouldn't be the Iranian militias in Syria and Iraq that are trying to hear, hit our military men and women if it hadn't been for Iran. And who is funding Iran right now? China is buying oil from Iran. Russia is getting drones and missiles from Iran. And there is an unholy alliance. We need to be clear-eyed. The last thing we need to do is to tell Israel what to do. The only thing we should be doing is supporting them and eliminating Hamas. It is not that Israel Israel needs America. America needs Israel. They are the tip of the spear when it comes to this Islamic terrorism, and we need to make sure that we have their backs in that process. All right. Thank you. Mr. Ramaswamy, Mr. Ramaswamy, any daylight between you and the candidates we just heard on this issue on, on what you would tell the prime minister? Not in terms of what I would tell the prime minister, no. In fact, I would go one step further. The founding vision of Israel was based on the idea that they don't want to depend on anybody else's sympathy or direction in defending themselves. So what I would tell Bibi is that Israel has the right and the responsibility to defend itself. I would tell him to smoke those terrorists on his southern border, and then I'll tell him as president of the United States, I'll be smoking the terrorists on our southern border. That was biotech investor Vivek Ramaswamy at last night's Republican debate. Before that, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Uh, we're joined now by Matt Duss. He is executive vice president at the Center for International Policy. He is the former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. Matt, why don't you start off by your overall response to this debate, its emphasis on foreign policy, and particularly this beginning on Israel and Gaza? Um, uh, well, how do I start? I mean, I have to confess I didn't watch the entire debate because I felt the intelligence being sucked from my body 
um, as I as I tried to, to listen to what these folks were saying, and even just hearing those 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 clips you just played, I think my my IQ dropped several points. I mean, these are not these people don't understand foreign policy. This is just kind of knuckle dragging hawkishness um, to feed their base. Um, I think it's an embarrassment. Um, it's it's frankly inhumane. Um, to talk about foreign policy this way as t- thousands of Palestinians are being massacred in Gaza. It will not keep Israel safe. It will certainly not keep the United States safe. Um, so that's what I have to say about that. And Matt does. I mean, if you could elaborate on some of the uh, things that the, they, they said, not just the candidate said, not just about uh, uh, Gaza, uh, but also about the rest of the world. I mean, there was some kind of consensus, at least on social media, that if any of these people are elected, the U.S. will effectively be at war with several countries, including China, Russia, Iran yeah. uh, uh, and so on. So if you could yeah. if you could talk about that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you heard Haley just just now basically sketching out the new axis of evil, China, Russia, Iran, um, that that she as president, I mean, clearly she'll she won't be the nominee, um, but she could potentially be a vice presidential nominee um, under Trump, who will, of course, be the candidate. Um, but she would lead us. She's proposing to lead the United States into yet another global war on terror um, after the previous 20 war, one, you know, 20 year war on terror that this administration um, has been trying to wind down um, with with some success, but some failures. I mean, I think their approach to the Gaza war has frankly been uh, atrocious. Um, but, yeah, that's what we saw. I mean, there was really no policy. I think you just saw signaling and rhetoric. Um, just that was that was frankly barbaric. Um, And I think it's very concerning that this is the state of the debate um, in one of the country's two major parties. Matt, I want to go to an excerpt of your former boss, Senator Bernie Sanders. He was on CNN Sunday when he was interviewed by Mm -hmm. Dana Bash. I want to just clarify one thing, Senator, if I might. You support a humanitarian pause in Gaza. Some of your fellow progressives say that there should be a full-on ceasefire, which would require an agreement on both sides to halt the fighting. Do you support a ceasefire? And if not, why not? Well, I don't know how you can have a ceasefire, permanent ceasefire, with an organization like Hamas, which is dedicated to turmoil and chaos and destroying the state of Israel. And I think what the Arab countries in the region understand, that Hamas has got to go. That clip was later shared by APEC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Uh, Matt, you worked for Senator Sanders. Uh, She pushed him on a ceasefire. He said he was for a um, a pause, but wouldn't go so far as a ceasefire. Your thoughts? No, I think the senator has been one of the strongest voices— um, for a cessation of violence, for uh, for stopping the bombing. These are the words he used in his speech on the floor of the Senate um, a couple weeks ago. Um, he has been one of the strongest voice voices in the in the country, raising the issue of the Palestinians who are dying. And even before October 7, he was one of the strongest voices pressing the U.S. government to address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Um, so I understand there are some of my colleagues on the left who've been pushing for, you know, to use the word ceasefire. I get that. I think um, what the senator said there about the challenges of a ceasefire being negotiated with an organization like Hamas are valid. Um, 
where, where my focus is, and I think I would encourage people to focus, is on stopping the bombing. Um, a humanitarian pause is something the Biden administration has already called for, said they support. They need to get their diplomatic weight behind that. They have not done that yet. They are still not using the leverage our country has with Israel to stop the bombing. And that's where I think the focus should be. Well, I also want to ask you about the House of Representatives vote Tuesday to censure Michigan Democrat Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American member of Congress. Twenty-two Democrats joined Republicans in backing the resolution. Tlaib addressed her colleagues on the House floor Tuesday. Trying to bully or censor me won't work because this movement for a ceasefire is much bigger than one person. It's growing every single day. There are millions of people across our country who oppose Netanyahu's extremism and are done watching our government support collective punishment and the use of white phosphorus bombs that melt flesh to the bone. They are done watching our government, Mr. Chair, supporting cutting off food, water, electricity, and medical care to millions of people with nowhere to go. Like me, Mr. Chair, they don't believe the answer to war crimes is more war crimes. So that was Rashida Tlaib speaking just before the House voted to censure her. Your response, Matt Duss, and in general, how this fits into the kind of silencing of pro-Palestinian voices yeah. in the U.S. I mean, I thought the censure was absolutely shameful. Um, when one considers the crazy things that members of Congress say all the time, um, just wild, wild stuff. I used to, to work in Congress. I know I would hear it all the time. The idea that this comment from this member of Congress is worthy of censure, that 22 Democrats would join in censuring their colleague, the one Palestinian in Congress at a time when thousands of Palestinians are being killed, I think is shameful. Let me ask you this, Matt Duss. More than 300 Ukrainian scholars, artists and activists have signed a letter expressing solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. They write, Palestinians have the right to self-determination and resistance against Israel's occupation, just like Ukrainians have the right to resist Russian invasion. The letter standing in stark contrast to the president, Zelensky, who was going to mm -hmm. Israel, apparently. But when those plans leaked, um, he canceled those plans. Your response— mm -hmm. I think that's right. And as a Ukrainian-American, I also stand in solidarity with people under occupation. Um, the Palestinians are facing um, a much more powerful neighbor, the Israelis, who are in many ways trying to do to the Palestinians what Russia is trying to do to Ukraine, which is snuff out um, them as an existing nation. Putin does not recognize Ukrainian nationhood. It does not see Ukraine as a legitimate state. Um, Netanyahu feels the same way about Palestinians. His governing partners feel the same way about Palestinians. Now, certainly in resisting occupation, you know, the Palestinians, as Ukrainians, need to follow international law. There should not be attacks on civilians. The attacks of October 7th were atrocious. They were terrorism. They were heinous. Israel has the right and responsibility uh, to respond and to defend its people. People. But I, I, you know, again, I, I would the parallel here is between two peoples uh, facing occupation, um, two peoples trying to secure their own rights and self-determination. Um, that's not to say the two situations are identical um, in, in all senses. Um, but I do appreciate the sentiments expressed in that letter. Matt does want to thank you so much for being with us. Executive Vice President of the Center for International Policy, former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. 
as we wrap up, we want to wish a very happy birthday to Diana Perra and congratulations to our crew member, Matt Ely, and his partner, Zara. Welcome to the world, Zyra and Carlia's Benola Ely. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Dina Gesder, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcafte, Marie Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Hani Masood, Sanji Lopez, our executive director, Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, I'm Amy Goodman, Nermeen.